0: Statistics do not change us. They shock us for a moment, and then we turn the channel. So statistics don't do it. Another shooting. Well, we start to get immune to it. We're like, oh man, another shooting. We get immune to it. Relationship is what changes us, actually knowing someone's story, actually listening to them, and, and, and sharing your side, being honest to go, wow, I've always kind of been negative about that. I've always had a bad opinion of that. Be willing to be honest.
1: When Jesus came down from heaven to live among us, he taught us an important lesson. He taught us that if we are to love and serve as He has called us to do, we must enter into the stories of the people we seek to love. Filled with empathy, we now walk in love as Christ loved us. With this in mind, this month on the Grace Church Podcast, we are engaging in conversations with people in our community who each have unique perspectives on the issues of race, culture, and the American experience. This is Race and Story.
2: Hi, this is Father Jonathan, and I'm coming to you again with uh, a podcast about race and story. Actually, this is our first on the Race and Story podcast. And um, th- today I have with me my wife, Marissa. Hi, Marissa. Hi, honey. <laughs> <laughs> and what I want us to do today is a little bit of a different podcast. And the other podcasts that you will be hearing as we go forward with this series, you will be hearing uh, interviews with people from around Ocala and here at Grace Church telling their experience with race and story. And today, I just want to have a conversation with you, Maris, about our experience with race, racial reconciliation, and to tell a little bit about our journey, okay? Sounds good. All right, so... We are newly married. Uh, So, like what? We got married when we were 21.
0: Right. Let's rewind. Newly married in 94.
2: In 1994. Yeah, Yeah, not today. Not today. Obviously, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going back in time here. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, 1994, we're married, and uh, we graduate from the beloved University of Florida. Woohoo! Yeah, go Gators. And um, we move to St. Pete. We did. And I go on staff with uh, the college ministry InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And in that move, uh, one of the books that my supervisor, Paul Hughes, gave me to read was a book called More Than Equals. Do you remember that book?
0: I do remember that book. That was pretty influential for us.
2: Okay. What do you remember about that book? Anything? What do you remember about that time?
0: About that time? Oh, well, there were a lot of things because, oh, we were looking for a house. I was pregnant. We just moved. Um, and How old were we
2: then? 20? 20...
0: If we'd been married a year, then we were 23 and
2: 22.
0: Yeah. 22 and 23. Okay. Yes. So we were young. and um, To say the least. To say the least. We and we knew nobody in St. Pete. No. Not at all? We had whole,
2: not a, a couple not a, of acquaintances. Yep. Good.
0: New friends, maybe, we'd call yep. them. And um, so what do I remember about the book? I just remember being surprised at the, the level of racism that existed where they were. I think they were in Mississippi. Was that correct?
2: Right. Okay. So the, this is a word about the book. The book's called More Than Equals. Mm-hmm. It's written by a white guy, Chris Rice, and a black guy, Spencer Perkins. Mm-hmm. And they talk about how they are more than equals, that they are actually brothers, and that this issue of racial reconciliation can actually be uh, talked about best in the context of uh, Christianity. The faith, right. Yeah. Faith is the only place that this makes uh, any sense.
0: So what I remember is that that's the first time I'd ever thought of it in that context. Mm-hmm. I think I thought of racial reconciliation as a political issue or um, a, social a social issue, issue right. but I had not ever considered it as an issue of faith. And then it was actually an issue for all Christians to consider, not just, um, you know, I don't know, someone who marched with MLK or something right. like that, that right. it was a, it was an issue for all Christians. And it made it a more universal topic to me at that time. That's very and that helpful. Was
2: that's right. I'd eye-opening that. for me. Because up at that point, we had thought, okay, so if you're a Christian, you need to read your Bible, you need to pray, right. you need to share your faith. You it was need kind of to... a
0: selfish faith, honestly. It was kind of like, what do I need to be doing so that I'm growing, so that I'm becoming a better Christian? And suddenly, this was an idea of living out your faith in the real world that was more uh, external and less internal.
2: Okay. So we're reading this book. It's very powerful. Actually, in that book, there's a little test. I don't know if you remember it. Uh, to, oh, my gosh. Uh, this little test was talking about whether or not, uh, what's your racial uh, aptitude, basically? Oh. Like, kind of what do you know yes. about, it wasn't like if you're a racist, but it was do you have racial awareness, understanding, that kind of stuff. And we took that test. You remember it?
0: Oh, shamefully.
2: Yes. So what happened with that yes. test?
0: Well, I thought because we were both history majors that we were going to do pretty well on this, right. that we had a pretty good understanding and I was going to know dates of certain marches and...
2: It was only like 20 questions.
0: Oh, I know. But I didn't realize it was going to be just an actual like so lack happened? of awareness. Well, suddenly so many famous people were black that I had no idea. Right. Like the guy who... And I'm now, shamefully, I don't remember the name, but the, 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 the guy with the light bulb, like Edison invented the light bulb, but it couldn't stay on until... I hope my students aren't listening because I can't remember his name. I teach history. Um, But anyway, the guy who made the filament actually work, like that guy was black, gets erased from the history books. Mm. Um, I remember that St. Augustine was black, and I was like, what? Everybody – I thought all fathers of the faith had to be white with blonde hair. So I was shocked that he was North African. Um, I remember that. I remember the the under – like the – Things like calling Africa the black continent, and there were so many negative connotations associated with just the word uh, black or African, and I don't know, I just remember being shocked at how little I knew.
2: Okay. So we take this test. We're both shocked. Simultaneously, we are, um, you're pregnant with our first daughter, Eliana, Mm -hmm. and uh, we're looking at buying a house. So we're reading this book. And we're also looking in Saint Petersburg to buy our first little cottage,
0: cute little cottage.
2: And we it basically boiled down to two houses. Do you remember that?
0: I do. There was the one. There was one in a like a working class white neighborhood, right. and one in a maybe used to be working class white neighborhood, but was definitely no longer. Right. And
2: it was now on the first ring outside of the. Classically defined inner city. It was right. on the border of the inner city, right. basically. And I would say, what 60-40 black white?
0: Yes, I would say. I would say that's fair. Um, and the white people that were there were old.
2: Right, they were. They and were, They, they wanted out of there. They, they just they, hadn't. If they could have gotten, gotten out, out. they would have. Yeah,
0: they just hadn't gotten out.
2: Um, so we came out of those two houses. We had read this one book. It had impacted us greatly. We wanted to be racial reconcilers, and yes. so we. Plus,
0: I mean. Now that we've taken the test and our eyes have been open, I thought we knew it all. We I knew mean, everything
2: yeah. there was to know. And yeah. certainly, uh, we're married and we're 22, 23 years old. We know yes, all we, that there is to know. Absolutely. And so we did what?
0: So we bought a house in the inner city.
2: So we bought a house in the inner city. That's and what we did. How did <laughs> and how did that go? Um,
0: well, I mean, how did it go? It was... <laughs> Well, it was surprising. It was There were things we weren't expecting. I, we just absolutely had no idea what we were doing. So it wasn't – we had no plan. We just thought, well, I mean, if we agree with this book that we've read, this one book that was perhaps 200 pages, if we agree with the things in this book, then as Christians, this is what we should go do. So, all right, let's just take our tiny bit of money that we have and invest it there. And I think we just had no idea what that even meant. How
2: big of this issue of race was.
0: Right. right. I mean, yeah, we had no idea. We had no idea, and no plan. I mean, and no backup. Right. There was no, you know, we. So, what are some this. of the funny stories
2: that happened, or painful stories that happened when we first moved into the uh, inner city in St. Pete?
0: Um. Well, this was what stands out to you what at do, the do you time of welfare reform. This was since we're going back in time. At this point, we are now at about 1995, and. Um, uh, Bill so, Clinton is yeah. president. He's working on welfare reform. So we're reading some things about that and trying to figure out what is this going to mean and how do we feel about this and okay, the system does need to be reformed, but what's going to happen? And having grown up um, in a, you know, more politically conservative climate, both in our homes and nationally, growing up in the 80s, um, I think we had a very uh, I don't know conservative view like welfare is bad and um, these things are bad because people need to get a job and work and there was no concept of um, people's context there was no I had no understanding of generational oppression of systematic oppression and um
2: so we were aware of personal racism but we weren't re- really we had not really thought through systemic or system no. racism. No.
0: Oh, did I mean I didn't I never heard the word didn't right. even know it existed. I understood like a few people I had met in my life were obviously racist and so therefore I just didn't like them. Right. But I had no idea that we there was racist. A, No. So, I mean clearly clearly we never Though had Though we a racist didn't know any that, black
2: history. We weren't Right,
0: racist. right, right, right. Or truly have any intimate
2: Black friends. Black
0: friends, or right. we just knew we didn't hate anybody, and so therefore, we, we were not racist. Right. But Definitely we had not. no idea so we the move in. latent racism that exists right. within all of us, or latent prejudice. prejudice. We could at least say that we had latent prejudice that exists in everybody. Everybody has a bias for and against something, something or someone or groups of people. Right. And we. Uh, that was another thing. You were much quicker to admit that than I was. I was adamant that I was not prejudiced or racist, but... um took a few more of those tests and realized how little I actually knew. <laughs> so anyway, go ahead. What were you about to say?
2: Oh, no. Okay, so we move in we move and down. we uh, we have our little girl, Ellie, and we're, we're setting up our little cute house. And we then also begin to discover how little we know about the inner city and the context of systemic race, uh, racial issues, racism. And uh, what are some of the ways that we discovered that?
0: Okay, well, I remember one time a woman came to the door. She saw us working outside, and this um, this woman came to the door. Well, and even asked that itself. Me, I mean, the
2: fact that we were working in our yard. Right.
0: That was that rare. was rare. Right. So we were working outside. She came up. We we hadn't. I don't even know if we had moved in yet. I think we were just cleaning up and things before we moved in. And um, she asked me for money, and I was like, "Wow, the, uh, you know, no place I have I ever lived in my life that a neighbor has come and just asked for money." So I was like, "Well." But, you know, I had learned you don't just give people money because you don't know what they're going to do with it, but you always offer to buy them food. So I said, well, I will walk with you down to the little store and buy you some lunch. There was a little market a couple blocks up. So as we're walking down there, I was trying to make conversation and chit chat with this lady. And so I said, well, um, what do you do? And she looked shocked and she do. And I was like, oh, well, like, what do you, what's your job? What do you do? And she said, I get a check. And I was like, what? I didn't – I had I never – I didn't understand that even asking her if she worked was like completely outside of her context. There was – she had no – she didn't even know what I meant when I said, what do you do? And I was shocked. It was the first time I had realized that there's actually a way in which people are raised to not even have the same values or the same context that I grew up with in so my world. So really that world, was a
2: collision of your middle-class absolutely. values. Because, I mean, you and I both went to uh, – what, what what should we say here? Upper middle class or uh, upper class elite private schools?
0: Uh, yes, I mean
2: your private school high school in Fort Lauderdale was uh, Westminster.
0: Correct, Westminster uh, Academy. Westminster mm-hmm.
2: Academy, very elite, predominantly white, uh, predomin-
0: <laughs> predominantly uh, predominantly
2: yes. white private school, and I went to Lake Highland Prep. And where we had, you know, our token one black person.
0: We had a couple of little token black people
2: as well. And, uh, but and I wasn't
0: racist because I went to prom with one of them. So I knew for sure I wasn't racist. For sure you weren't racist because right. you went to prom with a black person. Shout girl. out to Akiva.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So we have these um, experiences, but now you're having – now all of your assumptions are being challenged.
0: Right. And it was hard for me. That moment was hard for me to not feel annoyed. Like I felt irritated at this person. Here we were, a struggling young couple, pregnant. Right. I'm still in school, trying to finish up. Barely and, two dollars yeah, to our name, right? Whether we needed it or not, and and here she was. She got a check, and she wants me to go buy her lunch. And I, I felt. I mean, annoyance probably would be a slight.
2: Okay. Understatement. So that was the first experience, and then. Um, the second experience I remember that we've talked about before was the time that we were watching television and on TV, this was in the days of the, uh, the anti-drug marches. Remember those? Oh, oh,
0: the, oh. Uh, they, <laughs> no, they would, they I know would, what they would march, to
2: say. they would march through the, the neighborhoods mm-hmm, and they mm-hmm. would go to the, uh, the drug dealers' houses and these were, these made for good news because it was neighbors taking back their neighborhood. Right. And right. they would, uh, march through the streets and they would say, up with hope, down with coke. And we were watching one of these parades these uh, marches on the news. Right, on the on news the- and all of a sudden... But wait,
0: we were kind of laughing because we we're like, that is so corny. What in the yeah, world? Yeah, that's kind of silly. Yeah.
2: And then I said, wait a minute, do you hear that? And we turned down the volume and we realized <laughs> that the live feed for that parade was actually on, our, on street. our street.
0: It was on our street. And we
2: looked out the front window and, and they, they were. were stopped in front of the drug house, which we didn't know was a drug house. Right. Catty corner to ours. Yes. And in that moment... I was filled with abject fear because I realized that I had bought a house, not just in the <laughs> inner city, but around drug dealers who were clearly bad people. I had never right. known any. Right. I didn't know a thing about drug culture. And I thought, what are we doing here? That As was... they then chanted up with hope, down with coke for at least 20 minutes.
0: Outside our house.
2: Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, right, exactly. Outside house, our house. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we could have gone out true. and been interviewed by the reporter because she was still there.
0: Right. No, that was funny. Remember? My, remember <laughs> I don't remember
2: the, it being quite that funny.
0: I remember thinking it was hilarious, but I never- I remember not, thinking we're doomed. I know, but I never- You know me. I always think everything's funny. Yes. Uh, so I thought it was a hoot. But I remember trying to bring them Christmas cookies.
2: The drug dealers? The drug dealers. Oh, that's right, because you bake Christmas cookies uh, for, brought to our neighbors. Right, right, right. What I happened remember- with that? Did they answer the door even?
0: No, they wouldn't answer the door, but the door was open, and all that was closed was the screen, so I knew that they were there. So I, at first, I was like, I'm just going to go bring cookies, and you were like, I am not going, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go. So I... <laughs> I, I, so I was going to be so brave. So I sent
2: my little wife. And Laura, no, so I was going to be so
0: brave. So I walked down the sidewalk and I tried, I knocked on the door and nobody came. So I set them on the on the ground. In remember, front. I
2: watched you across the street. Uh-huh. I watched you the whole time. Thank you. Like, like I was going to be able to do right, anything. Thank if you for stopping the bullet from right exactly from, from across, across the, street. the street. I was guarding so, my little girl in her bassinet.
0: So I oh, I think well okay. Um, so anyway, I remember I set them down and I was going to just like walk away. Civilized and with some dignity, but an overwhelming amount of racist fear filled me, and I knew in that moment that I was going to be shot by a drug dealer, and I ran all the way home.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's just say uh, if we were going to sum up our experience in St. Pete, we lived there, I think, two years or a little bit less just under, just uh-huh. under two years. What would you say about our first experience in the inner city of St. Petersburg? Well, actually, I missed the biggest part.
0: Wait, the riots. Right,
2: the riots. The riots. Okay, so there is this, uh, a, a police officer shoots a, uh, a black man, a young black man. The young black the kid, man, is, has, yeah, with a, uh, he has a long criminal rap sheet, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it, was a, it was later proved to be a justified shooting, but it was one of those moments where the black community had had enough.
0: Mm-hmm. Of the, it was you know, not too long after Rodney King. I mean, it was still right, the mid '90s, right. so it yeah. was. I mean, it was a little. A couple okay, of years, so but. yeah, they
2: um, mm-hmm. there was not too long after Rodney King in the black community. Uh, that night, it was a Thursday night. I remember this very clearly. Um, there was immediately riots in the inner city. Now we we're on the first wave out, so the riots didn't quite reach us. But uh, we woke up the next morning, and the news was just a buzz with houses being burned down. And everything was really bad, and um, I was substitute teaching to supplement our income. Mm-hmm. And I substitute taught that Friday, and I remember being in school and hearing, overhearing the kids in the classroom talking about how excited they were to get out of school because they couldn't wait to riot on Friday night. Mm. And what happened that Friday night?
0: So that Friday night, we came home. We were we could hear all this noise outside our house. We could hear. Uh, you know, yelling, and we weren't sure what it was. And I was like, "Let's go see. Let's go see. Let's go outside and see." And um, so, I, I think of the two. I in our younger days, at least, I was more impulsive. So I decided. Were you not. scared at all? No.
2: Because I remember. I remember right now as you're talking about this memory, i remember being extremely. I don't think afraid. I was smart
0: enough to be scared. I think I was just like impulsive, and I wanted an answer more than anything. Like, what is going on? So I walked down. We lived two houses. You know, one we weren't on the corner. We were the next house from the corner. So. I walked past our neighbor's house, and on that corner, as I'm walking, there are crowds of people. People are shouting. There's police in riot gear with their those uh, plexiglass or whatever shields in front of them, and the police officer started. And and then the house on the corner, not the house next door to us, but across the street on the corner, was in flames. Like, the house was being burned down. How much in flames? Oh, I mean, it was like I this. it was up in flames. It was I mean, it was in, it burned to the ground, right? Like it, was, it burned to the it ground. Was it wasn't like, like a, the, the biggest bonfire I, had, I, I mean, it seen. was a massive fire. And the police officer kept shouting at me to get back to get back. And I was like, No, no, I have a question. I just have a question. Excuse me. <laughs> I have a question. Do you, was do you remember the shotgun? It was
2: well, it was he had big the shield and the shotgun. The shotgun
0: went to his shoulder, and so it was certainly as yeah. big as me, like it was enormous, right? And so, um.
2: Because I was right behind you at that point. I remember this.
0: Oh, were you? I didn't yeah, know you came uh, out. But yeah. I, um, so I walked, so I kept telling him, no, I have a question. I just need to ask you. So I walked up and I was like, is this in relation to the shooting yesterday? And he was like, ma'am, get back in the house. So obviously it was in relation. It was a retaliation kind of a thing. And I remember
2: I asked him, where, are the, where, where is the fire department? Why aren't they coming? And he said, he yelled at me as well. And he said, there's shooting in this neighborhood. They're not coming. Right. And I remember thinking, Wait. The fire department, we're in the middle of St. Pete. The fire department is not coming. Right. How many more houses are going to burn to the ground tonight? Because they're not coming. Because they won't
0: come. Right. And, I mean, fortunately, that was the only house to burn down.
2: That we saw, but there were, I think, over 100 houses that were burned to the ground. As I've looked it up in the past.
0: Oh, wow. I don't know if I ever knew that.
2: It was massive. Well, it was
0: a terrible scenario, So, okay. so we have this. We, okay, so, so that we happened. Have the, the That rioting. was when I started having doubts. <laughs> Prior to that, I was like, this is fine. This is fine. But at that moment, we had a nine-month-old baby. I remember she was nine months old. Because I remember talking to some, this this older, he was an older man um, in my class that I was taking, but he was actually like in his mid-30s. Um, and he was like, oh, no, that's all cool and great when you're young, but now that you have kids, you got to... You know, you got to get out of cool there.
2: What's all cool and great? Oh, living Living. And he's
0: yeah. like, sure, sure. My wife and I did the same thing. We thought it was great to live in a kind of dangerous downtown neighborhood when we were young. But once you have kids, you got to get out of there. That's not safe anymore. And I was like so conflicted when he was saying this because, you know, even though I was young, my, you know, maternal instinct was protect our child. We need to get right. out of here. This is not safe. But what I was learning and what I was growing in in my faith was this is still – this is still a Christian value. This is still right.
2: And that's where you and I were going in different directions because my desire for my house to have worth and value, I knew that these riots were not helping it. Oh, and for sure. so my house was now worth less. And so I was like, this is garbage. And I realized how little we understood about the context of systemic racism that we had moved into, that we were woefully unprepared. This was the stupidest idea, and we needed to get out of there.
0: And I don't think that I was as aware of those things as you were. I don't think that I was, um, I wasn't reading as much as you were on those kinds of topics. I mean, I was reading like what to expect the first year and things like that. You know, I was reading all kinds of baby books and um, things like that. So I don't think that I understood as much as you did, which is probably what kept me so hopeful.
2: Okay, so not long after that, uh, InterVarsity asks us to move to Orlando, mm-hmm. which we agreed to. Um, we still own our house in St. Pete. There are there's no one buying houses where we're selling our house, and so we have to uh, rent it out because mm-hmm. we don't we tried to sell it, but no mm-hmm. one would buy it. Right. So we got a renter and that worked out okay for us. And we moved to this small apartment in Orlando mm-hmm. and we begin to talk about, okay, let's buy a house here in Orlando. And you say?
0: Oh, I I said we should look in the inner city. We should go, let's look downtown.
2: And what did I say? Heck no. (laughs) (laughs) I said, no, never. That that part of our life, that little uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. two-year experiment was ridiculous. Right. And we're dumb, and I do not want to do it. And what did you say? Do you remember?
0: I don't know if I remember. No.
2: I do. We, it was a pretty heated discussion. Well, I
0: remember we had several discussions about it.
2: And yeah, they were always heated, and you were always yes. like, "No, this is what Christians should do," and right. I was like, "Okay, fine, but we are not those Christians. We cannot handle this. We have two little kids. What are we doing here?" Oh,
0: because yeah, at this point we had another one. Yeah, we had another yes. we had a Leah
2: now, mm-hmm. and and I and then so we got, we basically came to one of those moments in our marriage where we we're at an absolute impasse. Mm-hmm. You said one thing, I said another, and there was no agreement coming. Correct. And so you uttered those fateful words. I will never forget them. I remember we were standing in our living room of a little tiny apartment, and you. Said,
0: oh, I know what I must have said. I must have said. Let's just pray about it.
2: No, you said. I'll pray for you about. I'll pray for you. Like as if it was like a Harry a threat, Potter spell. A threat. I will cast oh, yeah? a spell upon you.
0: Well, I'll pray for you. Because you're obviously you. in sin. Right. 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 Oh my God. Uh,
2: I'll pray for you. And I was like, Oh yeah. Well, I'll pray for you. <laughs> you know, like I could have I'll cast my counter spell on you.
0: Oh. And um love that mature faith.
2: And we we just we just couldn't talk about it anymore. Right. Um but you know, you and what, here's the funny thing is I know for sure that you were faithful in praying for me about that. I know for sure I was not faithful because <laughs> <laughs> I was like we're not going. Mm-hmm. It is not happening. Mhm. Um, now maybe my downfall as a, not a downfall, but one of my things I do is uh, I read books and I study up issues. And so I kept reading books about this. Mm -hmm. Um, and I became intrigued not only with uh, racial reconciliation, but also what it meant to live in community with other people, what it meant to do life together. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And, um,
0: Dietrich Bonhoeffer,
2: Dietrich Bonhoeffer Mm -hmm. being a big one, a little tiny book that he wrote called Life Together together. that uh, will mess with your head. Don't read it. Um, among other books, another guy named Tom Sign. Remember that book?
0: Oh, yeah. What was that one called? Live It Up. Live It Up.
2: Live It Up. That was about living in community. And I was like, oh, gosh, this book's messing with my head.
0: But see, that's where we differed because I didn't like those books at all. I was like, that's weird. I don't want to live with anybody. I was definitely not as in on that as you were.
2: Well, those books just began to convict me of what it meant to live in community with each other. But Um,
0: that continued the, the kind of the conflict almost. It's what caused us to eventually go to the inner city was we came to a compromise okay you're like all right fine i will move to the inner city again if you think that's what we should do but i won't do it alone we have to do it in a community this time and i was like i do not want to live with anybody else but i do want to live in the inner city i do think there's more for us there and so all right
2: so i then asked uh two other couples uh, mm-hmm. John and Leilani uh, mm-hmm. Nettleship, who I hope listen to this <laughs> podcast because they will laugh at some of these parts. Mm-hmm. And uh, they lived in Tennessee at the time. And uh, they both had – I think John was finishing up school and Leilani was a nurse. And I asked them to quit their jobs and with no idea whatever whatsoever what we were doing to move to Orlando. And then there was another couple, uh, Tim and Michelle Bowden, who mm-hmm. weren't Bowden yet. They were not quite married, but they were getting mm-hmm. married. And they were just graduating college, and I asked them to also move in to the inner city. Right. And then finally, a young woman who was also graduating named Kim Coy, I asked her to move. She was a little bit later. But the first two couples, I asked them 1st Mm-hmm. And what did they say?
0: They, the they, the other couples. They said yes. Shocking. Yeah.
2: Shocking. Oh, was definitely shocked. That they quit their jobs and moved to Orlando for this wild, weird nutty, idea. Yeah.
0: crazy idea. Super weird idea.
2: I remember my conversation with John and Leilani. I had him on the phone and I said, okay, hey, I'm calling to talk to you about some an idea that I have. And... Um, I remember at one point Leilani interrupted me and she said, "Oh, well, you just want us to uh, pray for you and support you in your ministry." And I thought to myself, oh, "If only you have no." no then idea I remember, and the other couple said, asking. "Oh,
0: you just want you just want babysitters." And we were like, "It's a little bigger than that." <laughs> it's a little deeper it's a than, little than that than babysitter. <laughs>
2: so they all move, and we begin to form this intentional community. And then, long story short, we end up moving into the inner city. And this time, it's not on the outside of the inner city. Oh, it's It's, in. it's the it's absolute deep.
0: It's deep hardest,
2: in. worst part of Orlando.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, we picked it basically because it had the most use of uh, first responders in Orange County, most use of EMTs, most use of police. It had the, the, the single greatest usage of the civil services. Was in that neighborhood. And so what our thinking was, well, that's where Jesus would live. So,
0: Right. So let's move in. Let's move in. If Jesus lived in Orlando, where would he live? We found Columbia Street and figured probably real close to that. Right. And there happened to be a house for sale there.
2: So basically in Orlando, if you're looking at Orlando, it's right downtown. And actually there's a street that runs right through Orlando and it's called Division Street. And historically that Division Street was on the, I don't know which side. Or the east or west. I don't know. One side was where all the black folks lived. And on the other side was where all the white folks lived. And that was the dividing line of white and black Orlando. The right. Division the, Street the, was the, the dividing line. All
0: of the... And that
2: street still exists. You can still go drive on Division Street oh, yeah.
0: today. Uh, but all, all of the people that were in service historically had right. lived on the other side. So right. it was you know during the days of...
2: Segregation. Housekeepers
0: right. and things like that. Right. So, so we move mm-hmm. into
2: the inner city. Uh, of Orlando on Columbia Street Uh, one of the other couples lives around the block from us on Lee Avenue Mm -hmm. and that begins um, basically and the other couple
0: lived one block in the other direction so we we decided against the one big house and all of us living together because that was that was definitely way too much for me Right. Um, but living near one another was great. <clears throat> that was a good thing.
2: So we all live near each other. And so three white couples yes. move into. Two a, white babies. And two white babies. And we move into a neighborhood. And actually, right after we got there, Micah was born. So three white three babies. Three white babies.
0: Yes. We moved in. I don't know, February, March, and he was born in April. Right. So, so like I was a month quite after pregnant. There. I was quite pregnant when we moved in with him. And
2: uh, there are a million funny stories about that. Well, I mean, it's funny now, like when the rats came in the house and you oh. were freaking out. I was freaking out. And when I pulled the uh, the, t- the TV antenna, the massive antenna on the side of our house and on our neighbor's house. Yeah. When, I broke, yeah. when I was climbing on it and it fell down on me. and
0: All of the... Uh, the rifle shells sure sure so New Year's Eve uh,
2: oh, no, oh, in oh, all oh the, in the, the in bullets all you mean when are there we found all those bullets in we, the we house found we were moving into the house that's right that people had left behind and then on New Year's Eve when all the gunshots went off and when we, had we called it. the police and we said hey there's gunshots and they're like yeah we know we're not coming we're not and we're coming. like what are we doing here and then how many folks watched television on their front porch
0: on the front porch.
2: Which was shocking Green, to us. Mr. Green, our neighbor. He just sat Green. out there every night. Well, and I, I now understand the reason for that. Originally, it was because the houses didn't have AC. but uh, And so you would only watch TV where you could be the coolest, which was outside. But now everybody had AC, and they still watch TV on the front porch. And I remember the first time I ever watched a Tampa Bay Buccaneers game on the front porch with my neighbor drinking a beer, which I don't even like, thinking, what? What,
0: what are we doing? What? Why am I what watching
2: we, TV outside? What are we like, doing? Like, who does this?
0: Yeah, it was very common, though. Very common.
2: And it was... So weird for me as uh, a middle-class white guy with middle-class values to move in. What are some of the things that you learned over those five years? I mean, there's a million stories. And I don't want to get into them all. Right. That we could. But what are some things that you learned? We met a bunch
1: of people. We met a
0: lot of different kinds of people. I learned – I mean, some things I learned I never uh, needed to know. But I learned the, in detail how to take cocaine and turn it into crack. I was told – I was given explicit detailed uh, instructions on how that is done, boiled down, whatever. Should our listeners call you if they want to know or – You know, I'm not sure if I can actually remember the proportions at this point. (laughs) But I remember being shocked. Like, wow, I didn't even know that this was like a chemical experiment. Um, You didn't go to high school, so that's scary. But um, that – okay, so we learned those kinds of things. But overall, like internally, I learned um, that – more than race, there's a, a class difference. There's a, a, just a difference in the way people are raised and the, what, what you grow up knowing and believing, and um, that's where the system comes in. That's where the people aren't dumb or bad. They just have a very different reality. Than, than I had growing up. I did not grow up wealthy by any stretch, despite the uh, the four year stint at the elite school. Um, but my dad got up and worked hard every single day of my life, and so and that was a value that I was raised with. Um, you work hard, and that doesn't that value doesn't translate into other cultures, even other cult- other subcultures of. The United States. And so those were things I didn't know. And I didn't – it's easy to say, oh, people are lazy or people are takers or people are – Or if you just worked hard, you'd get ahead. If you just worked harder. And and that's not necessarily true. Like our
2: neighbor, Mr. Green, worked exceptionally hard. He worked
0: very hard. And –
2: he uh, was a, a laborer at a mm-hmm. construction site, mm-hmm. carried drywall, even though he was... Um, Go,
0: undergoing chemotherapy. Um, yeah. And he was in his And 60s. in his
2: spare time, he would also... He built that barbecue truck.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's the best barbecue I've ever had in my life, yep. Mr. Green. Yeah. Um,
2: so very hard worker, but very difficult for him to get ahead. And his wife worked as well, and they just struggled all the time. Was a she was a housekeeper, housekeeper. At, a, at a hotel,
0: hotel or something. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, those were things, and some of the experiences that taught me that were some of the people that we met and some of the, the kids that we had, that we came in contact with. There was, you know, our, a neighbor boy who was kind of in and out of some trouble, not not terrible trouble. He was just mischievous or, you know, he was kind of a goofy kid. And, um, you know, when you look at it and go, oh, this kid's going to end up in trouble. This kid's got blah, blah, blah. We'll start looking at his life a little more closely. Dad was...
2: On the front porch, Gary. Gary
0: yeah, uh, drunk by noon every Commonly day. Passed out in the
2: front yard. Yeah, just, just laying in the grass. Yeah, or, or just dirt.
0: slumped over on the on the on the porch in a chair mm-hmm. um, every day. And mom had uh, such terrible diabetes that she had to live in a nursing home. And so this kid's pretty much on his own. So it, I could look at him on the one hand and go, Oh yeah, he's failing his classes and he's not. Well, he was basically raising himself yeah. in a very Rough neighborhood, and the fact that he wasn't in jail speaks a lot to how well he was actually doing. But somebody else could look at that kid and think very differently of him. And I remember, um, you know, packing him lunches for school. You know, some some years I would pack him lunch almost every day and make him come over after school and do his homework. And I went to parent-teacher conferences to try to figure out what we could do to help him. And, and even
2: when he got in trouble with the law, you went to his court appointment.
0: Oh, he stole a bike.
2: Um, I thought he threw a rock off a. He threw overpass. a rock off
0: a bridge, and then when he was on probation, he stole a bike.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, that's right. And I had to go to court with him because he denied representation because he didn't understand what he was doing. He didn't know what it meant. And judge. his dad didn't speak much English, and so neither of them knew what was happening. So I went with to represent him in the courtroom. That was very scary. <laughs> that was very scary.
2: <laughs> to say the least.
0: Because I mean, that was I, just
2: one of the many things that we would do almost every day. We started, <coughs> we started a neighborhood association because the city didn't recognize individuals from the neighborhood. So we needed to have a, a community voice. Um, so we started that. Right. We, uh, we cared for the kids as best we could. The individuals that we met were Gary and Eric. And Shane, Shane, Shane was the one who made the biggest difference. But and I do want
0: to say, Gary. I mean, I do. I see him on Facebook. I haven't spoken with him in years, but I do see him on Facebook. And Gary? he, Gary, he's yeah. got a job. He, um, you know, I don't know. He, I think he actually did become a barber, okay. which had always he kind of been to. his dream. Uh huh. He and Eric both had always kind uh-huh. of wanted to be barbers. Um,
2: but Eric <laughs> got into drugs. He did, and he's been shot multiple times and done yeah, quite um, a bit of time. Several, several years in jail already. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, and so those are some of the boys that we got involved with. Not to mention Tia... and all of
0: the children that right. Eric has.
2: Oh, Eric has a bunch of kids. Yes, then, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, when you were at his first birth, you I went was. with his girlfriend to have the baby, yes, and to help him be involved
0: because he was fifteen and there were no adults in the room.
2: And he, there were no. Remember he there. knocked on our back window, yes, like. In the middle Two in of the, the night. I don't know it what was it was. terrifying. Yes. Yes. I, I mean, I was so scared that night when he showed up. And then you were like, I'm leaving. And I was like, why are you going? And you're like, I'm going.
0: Right. but Because I think she was 16 or 17. He was 15. And there was not one adult in that delivery room. Right. And so, so I was that. the only adult. Yeah. That was another weird night. <laughs>
2: <laughs> to say the least.
0: That was a weird night.
2: So... Um, all these ups and downs. And then, of course, I mentioned Tion. Tion lived catty corner to us with his mom, who was a drug dealer.
0: That's and where I learned about the, uh, the
2: how, how, to to make, turn how to turn cocaine into crack. crack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, they got evicted. And, um, as they're getting evicted and all their stuff's getting pulled out of their house, you said I had to go do something. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I mean, I was trying to think about what a kid from Lake Highland Prep would do. And you said, go over and help them. And I had no idea what that meant. So I went over there and I tried to help move or gather some of their stuff that was just getting literally thrown in the yard. And I told Tasha, his mom, hey, look, uh, you and Tion can stay with us, but you can't sell anymore if you if you stay with us. And she said, no, I'm going to keep selling, but Tion can stay. And so Tion began, that began one night that then turned mm-hmm. into two, that then turned into a week. And she would show up periodically, but not take him. And he began mm-hmm. to live with us. Mm-hmm. And eventually he lived with us permanently. For a grand total of five years,
0: it was on and off for five. Uh, it was consistent for two.
2: The first time, no, the, then he went left. When the went first time was only
0: like three months. Then he left for a couple of years, and then came okay, back for, for two straight years. Okay, so but it was on and off for five. For but five two of those years, years were straight. Five. And
2: we tried very hard to adopt him, mm-hmm. and legally we <laughs> lost that. Um, and he had to go back to his mom, and that was a really. Mm-hmm. horrible, terrible experience because we had a pretty good sense of what was going to happen to him. Right. And on Facebook, you tell me that that's kind of what we expected, right? It's happened. Yeah.
0: And I mean, yeah, I don't want to, but yes.
2: Yes. It hasn't. It's, it yeah, hasn't gone well. Hasn't it gone hasn't gone well, gone well, for well. him. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So that's some of our, how we began with race in St. Pete and then into Orlando with race and story. What have you learned?
0: Oh jeez! Um, I mean, there have been some
2: good stories. We told some. Hard, we, we ended on a hard one with Tion. Yeah, course. that's
0: the hardest. That's that's the hardest. The story. Most painful. That's, that's the most painful of, of all the stories. Yes, That's, right. that's the hardest.
2: Um, but what what are some good things? What, what what are some good things that you've learned, or some hard things that you've learned? What would you say about racial reconciliation now, mm-hmm. as a an, uh, a more mature matured Christian? Yeah.
0: Um, what would I say? I I feel like I. I, we've earned a little bit of um, voice. I feel like that's something... When I talk to my students about... When we have to talk about race or we have to talk about um, origins of the Confederate flag or whatever it is, I feel as if I have a little bit of credibility um, because I'm not just talking. I have lived through a lot of, of those things. I think one of the greatest things is... I feel like we've passed on these ideas to our kids. Mm. I feel I feel as if we're not just um, – we don't just have beliefs. We have – we've acted on our beliefs. Okay. And so I feel as if that has given us a little bit of credibility with our own children um, and in, in the community. Not necessarily Ocala because I don't feel like this community knows this part of us very well. Mm-hmm. But um, when conversations come up, I feel like there is – I have an understanding that I know for sure my other uh, middle-class white girlfriends do not have. Mm. I know that I have a perspective that other people do not have um, because you can't. If you didn't actually live with...
2: The least and the lost.
0: The least and the lost. You can't know. And there's there's so much that goes along with it because there's... I felt some of that same shame. There was certain amounts of... Um, you know, there was shame in people not wanting to come to our home. There was... Oh,
2: I mean, our white friends. Our white friends. <clears throat> that's right. Um, when we had a baby and your white girlfriends didn't want to to bring you meals because they were afraid of what might happen to them right. when they came in to our neighborhood.
0: Right. Um, so there were there were those kinds of moments that, um, you know, you, you feel that same shame that other people grow up with. And so that's an experience that, y- you know, you can't just hear it. Mostly our up.
2: friends couldn't... Be- they couldn't not understand and wrap their minds around why we or did what we did. our families. Right, our yeah. family didn't agree mm-hmm. with it. And even uh, <coughs> Kim Coy's parents didn't understand it. She now still lives there. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. other two couples have moved out. We moved out first to go to seminary. The other two couples stayed, moved out. Other people have moved in. The community has yeah. persisted and gone through waves and whatever.
0: Um, I, I mean, I learned a lot about, I think, myself as well. I also learned that I have... Certain limits. There, there was a point that I was just so um, exhausted, and so um, it, it was just so hard, day and night. People knocking on the door, needing things, wanting things. The kids couldn't play outside. We couldn't go for walks. We couldn't play in the park because there was glass and drug dealers and homeless people everywhere. I mean, the park was right across the street, and we couldn't go. And so there was just parts of that. Um, another thing that I really learned is it's easy to understand how people become hopeless because. Okay. After living there for five years, the second neighborhood we lived in for almost five years, there were I had so many days of feeling so hopeless and so many days of um, getting off the interstate and pulling into you know onto our street or into the neighborhood. and just this weight, this heaviness would come over me, and I would just almost dread because there is a part of us, like we are also we are made to love the lost. But we're also made for beauty. God made so much beauty in this world, and there's no beauty in the inner city. Everything is ugly and dirty and Tarnished and marred and graffitied and broken. Everything is broken. Street lights are broken. The streets are broken. The sewers broken. Roads don't work. Kids don't work. Families don't work. Nothing works in the inner city. And it became so oppressive for me after a time. You also traveled quite a bit during that time period in our yeah. life. And so you were gone two to three months out of the year. And I felt very um, alone in that in that situation and at first i was fine i'm i'm a fairly resilient person but over time it was like i just wanted some green grass to grow somewhere I just wanted to be able to put something in the yard that could look nice, so that when we came home, there was something pretty. But everything gets ruined, yeah. and so I just remember, like I understand the hopelessness. I can I can grasp people feeling defeated. Yes, I can grasp people feeling defeated and feeling like it doesn't matter anyway. And once you're can, defeated, what do you do? You, well, you give up, okay. or you go sell drugs because it's easy, right. or you whatever it is. Like it's you know, I remember watching Tasha's cycles of I'm going to go get a job. Well, you know she didn't have any skills
2: right. or
0: she and she didn't have a very good you know she had no resume or anything and so she would go work at taco bell was it taco bell or mm-hmm. arby's okay so <clears throat> at a fast food place and she was making whatever minimum wage was at the time six thirty an hour 650 or something like that and she, after a few weeks she would just give up she couldn't find childcare for tion i remember he was about three or four years old and she brought his his big wheel and let him just ride around in the parking lot of Taco Bell while she's supposed to be working and then she couldn't believe that the manager was angry at her for this and realized that it was a lot easier for her to sell drugs and in truth I tried so hard to talk her out of it but the whole time I'm like I mean I don't want you selling drugs but on the other hand like you're not making any money and Tion's in danger
2: right.
0: tootling around a parking lot on a bad road i mean
2: yeah
0: you know RGT. yeah on yeah, obt in orlando i mean it was just it was nuts it was terrible and so you just i really that hopelessness um is so real and it's easy to see if you've never seen anybody make it if you've never seen anyone be successful why would you try
2: how does that filter into your thinking about things like black lives <clears throat> matter
0: i understand the frustration I'm, and that is in no way to say that police lives don't matter. All lives matter. But I – yes, there there is a system that works against certain groups of people and works for certain groups of people. My son doesn't have the same struggle that a black teenage boy would have.
2: He's advantaged. He's advantaged. Yeah.
0: No one stares at him when he goes into a store. No one profiles him. No one is watching to see if he's going to steal something. The assumption is he has the money to pay for it. Right. And – That's not the case. Nobody, if my girls are playing with my teenage girls are playing with a baby somewhere, but no one assumes that that baby's theirs. No one assumes that they're teenage moms. They assume that they are, you know, thriving high school students, and that they're babysitting or they're playing with a niece or they're something. You know, They, they just don't have that. There's not. They don't go through life knowing that people are looking down on them and thinking poorly of them.
2: So, okay, so you said how this already kind of affects your life today. One, in the way that you have, we have cho- chosen to raise our kids and help mm-hmm. them uh, deal with these de- ideas. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Any other way that it's caused you to uh, see the world <clears throat> differently now? The way that you still engage with these ideas?
0: Um, well, I don't know. I don't know what you mean. Be- well, how about you? <laughs> you answer the question and oh, we'll see okay. where we're going.
2: No, I don't have any – I mean, there's lots of things that I think that we do differently, but it's subtle for us. Things like we are – Grace Church is one of two churches, white churches, that march Mm -hmm. in the MLK Parade. Now, that was Mm -hmm. started by the Gilmans, uh, Mary Lou and Steve Gilman, uh, and Nate and Patty, I think, as well. Um, I am quite proud of us for doing that. I don't Mm -hmm. see it as an obligation or as like, oh, we're continuing the Gilmans' legacy. I I think of it as, no, this is what – Christians should be doing and I'm every year embarrassed that there aren't as many white churches as black churches because it's not a black church thing. MLK brought uh, the issue of race to the forefront for all of us to uh, to bear. And I think every church should be in that parade, every one of
0: us. Right, right. Absolutely, because it's a Christian value. A Christian it's value, not right. a black it's value. It's not a black or white Correct. value.
2: It's a Christian Correct. value.
0: And I, maybe it's those things that I say gives me a little bit of credibility with my students and things like that, because th- I see them. You know, I'll see a lot of my black students, and they're always kind of shocked, like, Ms. French? So, um
2: that's a very small thing. That's
0: a very small thing. That's easy. It's right. one cold morning exactly. in January. Yeah. That's an easy thing to do. Um, I think we vote differently. I think we have conversations differently with our kids. Yeah. I mean, I think those things are The um, issues are, are much more
2: complex to me now. That would be another thing that I would say is Absolutely. before we began this journey, now we were, of course, much younger, but <laughs> mm-hmm. having been 20 plus years down this journey, mm-hmm. I don't see these issues as single variables. Um, I Instead, I see them as so complex that sometimes I'm overwhelmed and I think I don't even want to think about them. Right. Um, I want to check out of them. And when I hear people get very dogmatic, um, either one way or the other, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter, and I hear people get dogmatic either side, Mm -hmm. I think to myself – I disagree with the dogmatism because it's so complex on both sides. But that also is a tendency for me to want to check out and disengage mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and be like, Well, it's so complex I'm gonna do nothing. And I think it's where a lot of white folks go actually.
0: Right. I think that's true. I think um I think we're we're more outspoken. I think I'm more outspoken. I mean when the when all of this started and, and O'Cala had a real big surge on the uh with well, the like the the shootings and the black lives matter okay. and the and then there was the backlash with the confederate flag deal and all right. you know I've been more than vocal on my opinions on on that issue and because of
2: what we've been through
0: because of what we've been through who chose and and because of what i know right i I know and and even just facts just facts you know um I'm not going to jump down the history teacher lane, but um, that was actually never the flag of the Confederacy, and so you know, right. I have those. I want the truth to be told, and I don't mind mm-hmm. telling it. And if it offends people, it offends people. But there are certain things that are just though. that are just realities. Is that a symbol of hate? It actually
2: is. So, in your opinion, do you think this will wrap up with this? Maybe do you mm-hmm. think things are getting better, getting worse, or about the same as they have been in terms of the racial? understanding dialogue, either for Christians or for our society?
0: I think that they have to get worse before they can get better. I think we plateaued for about 30 years. We reached a point and people decided, oh, well, we have affirmative action now. And I mean, we don't have some of those black codes that we had and you don't have to pass a test to vote. And so I think things are fine. And we we let it go for a long time. Um, You know, well, we've all paid our dues because we passed welfare, you know, and so now we're paying back black people for slavery. And people really kind of had that mentality. There was really this, you know, we, we've we paid it back. Or, you know, Johnson passed legislation and so we're fine now. And that's not enough. That's The government did a lot, but it's up to individuals. And I think it's going to have to get worse before it gets better. I think that— Society.
2: So socially, you mean.
0: Socially. I, th- I think that what's happening now has got to be brought to the forefront. I think that— you know, people wanted to say, like, we're not racist anymore. We're not a racist right. country. Slavery a was a long time ago. That that's Slavery's been gone. And that's not true. Not only are we racist, uh, you know, against black people, we're racist against lots of people. I mean—
2: Because simply racism is prejudice, as you've already said, correct. plus power, plus power. The, abil- the ability to do something with that prejudice. And
0: as people are feeling like their power is being threatened, their prejudice is rising. And so the world is changing. The United States is changing. And until we can be okay with – we're a variation of colors now. We are not, you know, 88% white and 12% black anymore. Right. There's a lot more diversity going on here. And until we can all be okay with it, it's going to get worse.
2: Okay, so very quickly then, because we need to wrap this up, what is an antidote?
0: An, oh, wow. Hoo-hoo. An antidote. I mean – Like, what would
2: you say? So so some Mm -hmm. white folks Mm -hmm. are listening to this... Black folks, Mm -hmm. all kinds of different folks will listen to this. What would you tell some white folks who are listening to this? What would you say? Here's one thing you could do.
0: I mean, you know, my answer is always, like, we need to know people. You need to actually be engaged. Like, relationship is what brings change. Which is hard because it's like, hey, be my black
2: friend. Right. Because I need one. But you
0: know what? We did that once. That's right. We did. We went to people and said, we really are trying to understand other people's cultures and diversity. And, um, you know, there was a young black woman in my class. She was married and had a baby, same stage of life as us. And so we had them over for dinner. We're like, could you be our black friends? You know, Ed and Marsha Ollie were like, we need some diversity. Would you be our black friends? Yeah. And we did try. I mean, and it did change us. And they
2: told us some very hard things. They told
0: us some very hard things. They were, Ed and Marsha were instrumental in helping us understand things. So I think relationships, because we cannot change the world. We cannot influence the whole world, most of us. Very few of us are given that platform. But we can all have one or two relationships that change us Amen. we can all have one or two experiences that can change us and
2: what's one book that you've read that's helped you with this that someone should read
0: i know it sounds silly white flight to me was very eye-opening oh, okay white flight white by bob flight, lupton white flight was really eye-opening because i didn't understand the leadership vacuum i didn't understand what was going on in inner cities okay. um so that was that was influential so Okay. um good. I don't know. You know,
2: I would say an updated version of More Than Equals, but there's a lot of, there's a lot that's a very old book now. That's 1993. It is. There's um the white a white lot It's
0: pretty old too.
2: There's a lot of new ones out there that are really helpful. <laughs> I mean, if you were just to Google Christian racial reconciliation, you're going to find a lot of good stuff out there today that's going to be very helpful to you.
0: Yeah, to read I, I just think it's got to be it, – It's statistics do not change us. They shock us for a moment, and then we turn the channel. Right. So statistics don't do it. Another shooting. Well, we start to get immune to it. We're like, oh, man, another no. shooting. Yeah. We get immune to it. Relationship is what changes us. Actually knowing someone's story, actually listening to them, and, and, and sharing your side. Being honest to go, wow, I've always kind of been negative about that. I've always had a bad opinion of that. Be willing to be honest. I mean, I – had to, you know, fail a couple of tests and realize I didn't know enough about racism. And, you know, I don't know.
2: Okay. So, good. That's helpful. Um, (laughs) I hope that this podcast series is helpful to whoever's listening to it. I think that we brought a lot of interesting stuff to the table. Marissa, if folks want to contact you, can they?
0: Sure. Good. How? how, Why would they? Okay, good. How would they? I don't Give an email address. (laughs) My email is uh, marissafrench at gmail.com.
2: Good. And, of course, my name is JonathanDFrench at gmail.com. If you'd like to continue this discussion with us, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to know your thoughts about this. Um, and I hope that you engage with the things that Grace Church is doing um, in the beginning of the year, both with these podcasts, with the church watching the movie Selma, and, of course, yet again, marching in the MLK Parade. And this year, for the first time that I can remember, we are hosting the ecumenical service here at Grace and would love for you to be a part of that. That's going to be on Sunday night. Before MLK Day, I want to say it's the 15th, but don't quote me on that. Just look it up and uh, come and be a part of that ecumenical service.
0: Super exciting. Marissa, I love you. Thanks, love you.
2: Thanks for being on this crazy journey.
0: Hey, it's a good life.
1: I love it. Okay, bye. Hey, this is Josh, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. We know that the Holy Spirit is moving in our community in a powerful way, and we hope you'll share this message with your community. If you'd like to be involved in any of the wonderful things going on in our campus here in Ocala, you can learn more about us at graceocala.org. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. Well, we'll see you on the next Grace Church Podcast. Go in peace.